0: Hello, and welcome to the Superhero by Design podcast, a show where we interview real-life superheroes. Thank you again for listening. We are on part two with Harley Tuhan Elmore. And without a lengthy introduction, I think you guys already know who he is, so we're going to just jump right in. So Tuhan, I know it's been a while, but how you doing, man?
1: <laughs> I'm good. I'm good.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, hey. Yeah. My first question for you this round is what the heck does Tuhan mean? What that's your superhero name, but can you please explain it to, to the audience, please?
1: Sure. So, uh, you know, there's martial arts from every culture around the world. And so in, you know, in their own native language, they have different titles for instructor and master and grandmaster and that sort of thing. And then those vary from region to region. So my instructor, uh, Pamana on Chris Sayoc uh, took the title uh, of Tuhan when he was uh, 16. Um, you know, he did. He had a lot of um, h- historical understanding of the culture of the Philippines. He's a Filipino, um, and so he adopted that as the title uh, as his personal title in martial arts. And then in our system, that became the title that people would aspire to. Like that's the that's the master or grandmaster title. Um, and then. Um, you know his art and and he, his skill became so popular other 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 Filipino martial arts systems adopted the title too so now many Filipino martial arts systems use the t- the title of Tuhan to represent master of the martial art but in siok it means a lot more than that it's uh it's not just mastering the martial arts it's mastering yourself mastering your life creating a life by design uh, being an influence uh, to the next generation while you know, honoring the, the previous generation. It's a it's a whole giant thing. But uh, the simplest way to say it is for most people is just to say, uh, it means, you know, master in, in the martial arts.
0: That's incredible. I I love how you say it means much more, obviously in Psyok, than just leader or grandmaster. You're and I know you on a personal level. I've been to your house many times, broken bread with you. And I see that in your life, how you are a steward of your community, somebody who not only takes care of his family, but his extended family and the community at large. And you exemplify that. And I know it took a long time for you to become Tuhan, but I know how important it is to you. I know how important your tribe is to you. And I just applaud you because. Uh, there is not a better suiting super name, superhero name than Tuhan for you. And I appreciate you saying that. The first time I had met you and I had heard that you were into Filipino martial arts and this and that. And then I see this unassuming white guy <laughs> and I'm like, what the heck? Something isn't adding up here. Because I, I grew up in the Bay Area where there was a big Filipino community. So my experience around the Filipino culture is obviously much different than a guy in the middle of Texas. And how did you even find in your journey this martial art form? One, how did you find it? And two, it seems like this is, you know, a lot of different types of martial art forms. Why did this one also stick with you? So how did you find it? And why is it so important
1: to you? Sure. So there's a guy named Dan Inosanto. Uh, and, uh, Dan and Asanto, um, is probably most famous in, in the beginning of his life. was most famous because, uh, he was Bruce Lee's top student, Bruce Lee's best friend that is protege. And he inherited Bruce Lee's system from Bruce Lee when Bruce Lee passed away. And so, um, you know, he was in, you know, his movies with Bruce Lee he did stunt work. They trained together in the backyard. He helped train all the actors like James Coburn and you know, Steve McQueen and all those guys. And so Dan Asano, although he was already a martial artist um, under uh, a a guy named Ed Parker, um, Ed Parker had introduced him because Dan Asanto is an American-born Filipino. And so Ed Parker said, you should look into the Filipino martial arts. And he was like, that's stick fighting stuff. And uh, so that began his journey of discovering his own culture. And so uh, Dan Asano in the 80s wrote, Uh, regular columns for the trade magazines, martial art, black belt magazine, inside Kung Fu, inside karate, those magazines. I read his articles regularly. He produced some books, wrote some books, um, wrote a book on the Filipino martial arts, uh, wrote some books on Bruce Lee's martial art. And so I read those. And um, so, and I was training in other systems, obviously. I think I I am an instructor in 18 different martial arts systems. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. so I was trying, I was trying everything I could get my hands on. I was training all the time. And, um, but Dan Asanto was like his philosophy, the, the philosophy of Bruce Lee, um, and, uh, the, the cultural significance and, and the men that Dan Inosanto talked about were really superheroes. And so, you know, his mentors. And so I got a chance to meet him in 1988. Uh, same time I met Ter- Terry Gibson and, uh, I was like, yep, that's it. That's, that's the direction. And so I, 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 as I said, I got a job working for Mr. Gibson. His primary instructor was Dan and Asanto. So now I'm in the lineage right now. I'm in the family. And, um, I got certified under Dan and Asanto, um, uh, as well as Mr. Gibson. And, you know, in all the arts that Dan Asanto teaches, he teaches a family of martial arts, he teaches Filipino martial arts. He teaches Bruce Lee's Jeet Kune He teaches, um, his own form of C-Lot, which is from Southeast Asia. Um, and uh, he teaches Muay Thai kickboxing. So I studied all those arts at the time. And I did that until after Mr. Gibson's passing. Um, and then I was traveling to train with Dan and Asano via seminars and places like that. And um, we were talking one day about knife work, doing some knife training. And he had taught some stuff, and some knife stuff at the seminar. And I was like, what about some of this stuff that I had other stuff that I had seen him do? Uh, that was more dynamic. Right. And, uh, he said, you know, Harley, I don't really like teaching that, the brutal side of things. Um, if you're really interested in studying knife work, you should go study with Chris Syok. Who's that? And, uh, he's like, well, I think, uh, you know, on a scale from one to 10, Syok's a 10. And I was like, that's crazy. Cause Dan Asano is like a legend. Right. Um, and he teaches, uh, his, his system is a blend of 34 different systems of Filipino martial arts. So he is extremely well-versed. Um, in, in my opinion, he's the most influential martial artist of my lifetime. Um, so when he says, yeah, you should go study with somebody. I'm like, got it. <clears throat> I said, well, what do you think our system is? Uh, knife work. He goes, uh, seven, maybe an eight. I'm like, what? That's crazy. Um, that can be true. Uh, Dan and Asano's knife work had been accepted across the country and really probably around most of the civilized world um, as being the best stuff out there. Um, they did a video series for training survived, called Surviving Edge Weapons that became the standard for law enforcement training um, on how to deal with edge weapons encounters around the country. You know, So uh, when he said that this guy was better, I couldn't believe it. So he gave me his, got his phone number, gave me his phone number. And I was like, all right. So I came home after that event and called him and I uh, said, Hey, I'm Harley Elmore. I'm instructor in Dan Asano. He said, I, I want to do knife work. Cause you train with you. He said, okay, let me call you back. I was like, okay. So he called and vetted me with, uh, with Goro uh, guru, Dan, uh, that's what we call him. Guru is the Filipino term for teacher. And so now it's just a, it's almost his name. Now as a term of endearment guru. Um, but, uh, Guru said, said some nice words for me, I guess. And uh, so he called me back and said, okay, when do you want me to come down? Now, my wife and I were just getting started with our business, as we've talked about in the past. So <clears throat> we had zero money. And we're, you know, her and uh, as me, her and our great Dane lived in a back office, a back room in our martial arts school. And so, I, and, and his rates were insane. I was like, what? $10,000 to come to a seminar? I I'm a poor little guy in Texas trying to pay my light bill. I can't even afford rent in an apartment. That's why I'm living in my martial arts school. And uh, he's like, no well, do worry about it. We'll just take whatever we get. I'm like, okay, if you're willing to come down. So I literally invited everybody I knew because I wanted him to, you know, get make it worth his while. Invited everybody I knew. And so um, uh, he came down and did our first seminar and slapped me around like I was a little kid, man. I couldn't believe it. And uh, he literally did whatever he wanted to do. He was juggling knives and cutting me and cracking jokes and flipping knives and resheathing knives and drawing different knives. And I couldn't even begin to keep up. Um, and uh, it was a combination between being enormously frustrated because I couldn't stop anything he was doing and being uh, incredibly entertained by his personality and his skill and just being in awe of it. And um, Uh, So that was what the first day was like. And that night my wife and I are laying in bed and uh, she's like, I'm not sure I like these guys because they were so different. Right. Right. Their, their violence was part of their world. Um, And uh, where, you know, martial arts, you have your normal level of violence. and These guys had a abnormal level of violence. And um, so I was like, I, I'm not sure I do either, but man, that skill is amazing. I have never seen anything like that before. And uh, I want to be able to do that to other people. And I never want to have that done to me again. Right. And uh, so I was like, right then, I'm like, yep, yeah, I'm hooked. The, the physical system just blew me away. And, and, and uh, I'm on a 2 uh personal skill. Insane, insane. I mean, you know, there... You know, I have the title too on, but there's a massive difference between who he was and who I am, right? His skill level—he showed me stuff the first day we met that, that 22 years later, I still can't do.
0: Oh, that's in, that's insane! I've seen your knife work, and it's it's really good.
1: Not, not even a, close. <laughs> I am a I am a pale shadow compared to uh, his skill and uh, his knowledge and his understanding. Um, I mean I still aspire to, to that. I still aspire to that. I still I still work on those things. I still train and try and become better and be everything that he was and, and uh that sort of thing. But yeah, no, he was shockingly good. Shockingly good. And I had trained with many masters and grandmasters. Um, but this this guy and this skill set was what I was looking for. It was and there was something about him and about his his organization and, and the culture he created in his organization that that I wanted to be a part of. I couldn't put my finger on it at the time, but, um, there was something about the way they treated each other. There was something about the way they held each other to a level of, of performance and accountability. Um, there was, it was very camaraderie based, very family based, you know, you sat down with a wife and kids and a bunch of sweaty guys and you all ate, you know, at the same kitchen table that they eat breakfast every morning. And Um, I would sleep on his couch and his kids would put bows in my hair when I had hair and, uh, you know, steal your training trainers out of your, out of your duffel bag, you know, that kind of thing. It was very family based. Uh, But at the same time, it was, you know, the hardest training I've ever done. It was harder than being in the Marines. It was hard, physically harder than uh, any other martial arts training I've ever done or ever even seen. Um, So you know that that does a couple things, right? Right. It makes you good, or <laughs> or yeah.
0: <laughs> a couple of things I want to hit on that you have mentioned. You have mentioned working with grandmaster after grandmaster. You've you said you know over eighteen different types of martial arts. And one of the things that I always tell people is, if you want to get really good at something in a really short amount of time, you need to find the best of the best, get them to mentor you pay them what do, clean their floors, do whatever you need to do. And it sounds like you've figured that out at an early age at an early time in your martial arts career. And that's why you've been able to accelerate. And I definitely want to get into some of the amazing things that that you've done with your martial arts skills when it comes to the military and things like that. But I think it, it, it it's definitely worth mentioning that you trained with the best of the best because one thing you always say, I say it all the time is iron sharpens iron. But as you said last time and explained it even better is that iron when it sharpens iron, that's not, it's not, Oh, I'm just around Tuhan Elmore. So I'm going to through osmosis become a better fighter. Like, no, I need to put in the work and it's going to hurt, be painful and be miserable. Because iron sharpening iron is a very rough and uh,
1: a very hard process in reality. It's very painful, right? So, you know, people have a tendency, like you said, they want to hang out, right? Um, They're like sponges. So they're like dry sponges. And they just want to sit here and suck up as much as they can because they don't have to do anything except sit there and suck. Right, and uh, and that's what people do. Per- the, uh, the, there's a periphery around that, and and uh, the more skills you are, the, the more embodiment of that you have in your culture, the more it draws those people who just want to set, up, just be around and lo- absorb as much as they can by listening and that sort of stuff because they want to do it. That's the easiest path, and and they and they do make themselves better uh, just by that process but it doesn't really lead to much. Um, they can talk, but that's about it. Right. So, but ironing iron, sharpening iron is a painful process. It's rough, right? When you grind them across each other, you know, it takes a bit off of both, right? The harder steel and the softer steel get ground. And, um, so it's not easy on either one. It's effort on both, both pieces of steel. And, you know, um, it, sparks come off and, you know, it's a lot of friction, a lot of effort on both sides. I and mean, that's what really makes the change, right? Not just sitting there like a sponge soaking it up, but actually doing the work. And and I did, uh, as you said, I did learn early, like my first uh, instructor uh, that I ever trained with was uh, back in America. And in, in those days, we had a thing called PKA, Professional Karate Association. And my, my first martial arts instructor was the reigning PKA world champion in his weight division, you know, fighting on ESPN and traveling the country fight, doing full contact kickboxing and, and that thing. And so, and then my next instructor was the ISKA and PKA world champion. And, you know, um, and then I met Shodamani Ashley, who was seventh degree black belts, already a master and studied a couple of different systems, several different systems actually. And so he was very diverse, but also had a high level of skill. And, um, and I just kind of continued that theme. I realized, uh, pretty early, like I'm not going to go to college, you know, um, but a pedigree has value, right? When you go to a, an Ivy league school that has a value. Um, and so I realized that, well, that's not going to be my path. My path is martial arts. And so my pedigree in the martial arts will be part of that value add, right? So who you train with is very important. And so I've trained with a lot of great people, and I've and I've met even more, Um, and I've turned down rank um, because that wasn't really the person I want to represent, or maybe the art didn't fit me personally, and I wouldn't didn't feel like I would be a good representation of that. Um, I certainly don't teach all eighteen martial arts that I became an instructor in now, but they were they were necessary in the process of becoming who I am, and uh, so yeah, I think it's a really important thing that you choose your mentors carefully and uh and that realizing that having a mentor is not easy right, right. on both sides
0: exactly exactly well i want i want to take this conversation a little bit um a little bit away from that you had spoken about knife fighting knife fighting for those of you who have ever experienced it is very intimate type of fighting it's very close personal contact and knives are meant to cause a lot of damage to people. And you had mentioned having a violent upbringing and then through the knife training that you went through, ultimately there was, you had mentioned a violent, they took martial arts violence and took it to a different level. And I think violence in at least in modern culture, especially here in America is seen as something very scary, you know, a violent man, but you had to learn a, a violent martial art, but then you also take the principles of that martial art and blend it with that. So I'm going to ask you to talk about violence in general, your opinion of it. And I know this is the topic, t- touchy subject for probably a lot of people listening but I've I've experienced some of the violence you're talking about and it's made me a better person a better man but I would just love to get your thoughts on violence in general and how it mixes with martial arts and how ultimately it it is a betterment for the art form and for what special forces military police officers have to encounter on a daily basis
1: yeah so you know um It took a lot of introspective study to understand why I was always driven towards more and more combative martial arts. Why is the fighting part like there's certainly plenty of other things people can do with martial arts. Why is the fighting part something that I want to that I'm driven to? And and my first instructors were, like I said, full contact kickboxers. And so I sat down with one of my instructors and said, hey, if you had to do it all over again, would you do it this way? Would you do it again? Because I I was actually had my first fight scheduled. And um, he said, no, I wouldn't do it again like this. It's like, uh, you know, almost lost my left eye, can barely see out of it. You know, I've been champion and I've gone through three wives and they've all left me and managers have stole all my money. I'm dirt broke. You know, I'm at the end of my career. I've got nothing to show for it. I'm having to teach at your martial, teach at your, you know, uh, grade school lunch room to to, to pay for that motorcycle, you know, that kind of thing. And I was like, "Whoa, okay, well, that's not the path, right?" I, you know, he told me right there. I said, "Cancel my fight. I'm not doing that. That's not the path." Um, but there was something in me, right? And and of course, it goes back to, you know, what my father had told me all my childhood, right? And so I will prove him wrong. So I'll prove to him that I'm not the things that he says I am. That I can fight. That I am worthy. That I am, you know, all the things. And so, the more and more dangerous the martial art. More activity, the more it's going to be, uh, you know, self fulfilling, if you will, self empowering. Um, so that was my path, right? Uh, and I realized that, you know, you need to have an aspect of being dangerous. Uh, when I got in, I had done martial arts uh, and done lots of fighting on the streets and lots of fighting in martial arts. Um, uh, then I met Tuan Sayak and and the level of violence went through the roof, right? So, um, for instance, we do full contact stick sparring um, with helmets and gloves and uh, rattan sticks. And the worst thing that happens to you uh, in the fight is that you get hit hard with a stick. And of course, that can break bones, you know, rip off fingernails. Uh, uh, and at the very least, you get these big, you know, whelps all over your body and take quite a while to heal. Well, that's just a normal, (laughs) that's just a Thursday night in PSYOC. (laughs) In fact, you don't even get to fight. You just got to stand there and and take the flogging. And it's an exercise in emotional and physical control. So if they can whip you with a stick and you have no emotional change and no affect change in your face, uh, if you can keep your adrenaline and and endorphins under control, um, if you don't flinch or make a noise or anything, that's like the beginning level of being able to control yourself. And after you do those, tra- those types of training, this the sparring with sticks and helmets and stuff seems silly. Like that's nothing. I just did it without anything. I didn't even get to fight back. Right. And now, now I get to fight back. So the escalation of what their normal was was much higher than anything I had anticipated. And I'd done boxing and kickboxing. I'd been knocked out, all that stuff. But it was different. And then when you're talking about blade, um you know the blade is uh you know probably the one of the oldest tools known to man and uh will always be around and, and and it's in every culture um and um you know the consequences of that one touch and you're dead you know um if you want the one touch you know the democ the one the the secret you know I touch you and it kills you the blade is it you know um And it's such an amazing force multiplier that all of a sudden, this guy doesn't have to be a six foot two, 250 pound athlete uh, to kill you, right? Uh, That guy can be a little five foot nothing, 115, 120 pound Filipino with that blade. He is going to put you in an early grave. And so uh, that's when I realized, wow, these force multipliers, these skills here on a different level. And they still did all the punching and kicking because you, you sometimes you have to fight to the weapon and, and you don't just abandon all that once you have the blade in your hand. So it wasn't like we're just going to change gears and go just blade. It was like you just did blade all the time when you did all the other things. And you get big old purple bruises all over your body from getting stabbed. And I remember being on a military contract that got slashed across the throat with an aluminum trainer so many times. I caught myself at, at lunch talking like this holding my shirt, the color of my T-shirt off my neck because my neck was so raw. I couldn't bear the pain of my shirt rubbing up against it. So uh, it was a different level. It was a different level that I had never experienced before.
0: That's incredible. And I know through the principled savage training that I went through that that you teach, that's one thing I noticed is first we started with hand-to-hand combat and then knife work. And then we threw another even larger force multiplier, a firearm in there. And by the end of the weekend, you had us going from hand to hand to knife to gun back to knife, like throwing combinations of all of it. And it's absolutely incredible for you to talk about that because in a real life situation, it's not like a kickboxing fight where there's rules and there's penalties if you do something wrong and you know not everybody can can bite somebody's ear off like Mike Tyson did, you know. That actually happens in real life. Um right. Right. And so I I just find it incredible that uh the skill sets you've learned, you talked about force multipliers and for those listening, uh force multipliers are huge. Can you go a little bit into those and how people can apply that even obviously you use weapons and martial arts to demonstrate force multipliers, but can you explain a little bit about what those are and how people might be able to use them in their lives? And I'm talking about like, not only like the weapon choice, but we've talked about timing, distance, things like that. So right. that's what I'm getting yeah, to. So,
1: <laughs> sure. Yeah, I got you. So um, thanks for that cue up, by the way. Here you go. Uh, so, um, you know, we, years ago in inside, we did a study and we, back then you, it was very rare to get, Uh, security footage, right? Now it's everywhere. Everybody's got security cameras on every door. But back then it was pretty rare. And we would get something, a violent altercation, uh, an assault of some kind or a murder of some kind. And and we would get the link and we'd post it on uh, on an email and then we'd email it to a whole group of people. And that included high level military guys, high level law enforcement guys, different types of martial artists and all that stuff. And everybody would write their opinion of this, right? And so, and then we'd email it. It was very cumbersome. We would email that and everybody get everybody's report, so to speak. And then we would do it in another video and another video. And so, but that was kind of the beginning of understanding violence and um, uh, of the study of violence, rather. And we did that with, I don't know, for a decade with tens of thousands of videos because eventually it became very common, right? It was easy to get them off the internet. Just look up, you know, knife stabbings and, you know, Anything you want. People getting beat to death with a hammer, you know, chopped with uh, machetes, all that stuff. And so what we started doing is we're trying to break that down. What are the universals here? What are the ways that people consistently win? And what are the the people doing when they consistently die? Like, who's the guy who dies first? Well, we found that that's the guy who stands still, draws his pistol and tries to get a good, good sight picture sight alignment. That guy goes down almost immediately, even though he's got a gun. Um, we just found there's there's a whole bunch of these through, through setting all these videos that there was, it boiled it down to some simple principles and, uh, understanding force was one of them, right? But when you're having, um, two gangs shoot it out, a lot of times there's, it's hard to tell who's got more force. Everybody's shooting everybody. So who had more force there? So that can't just be the only answer. So then we started looking at, well, what's the environment? What's the circumstance? Is this a hit? Is what, what's the thing? And so, uh, so two on Tom Kyr from He really boiled it down to three things. And, he, and he, I think that uh, Tom, and we can talk more about him later, he'd be a great guy to have in your interview. Um, um, really, the stuff that we've boiled down through that process that Tom codified into a particular curriculum um, will be as commonly accepted as things like the OODA loop uh, in the world as people learn it and get, get more understanding of it. But this particular thing is force, space, and time. And so when you have a violent altercation, you're looking for, to, to improve your status in force, space, and time. We, we used the, the precursor to that was always be transitioning to a better weapon, a better position, right? That's a simple way of saying it in a tactical realm. Well, well, how do we take it outside of that, right? Well, if we take force and say, well, it's not martial arts, what else could it be? Well, the most common use of force today is money. Right. Right. So, if a guy's got more money than this guy, and all other things being equal, the guy with more money can affect more change. Right. Uh, He has more force. Um, but there are other types of force. Relationships are a type of force. Right. So that's why tribe is probably having a tribe is probably the most powerful thing you can do. Um, because every member you bring into your tribe is exponential growth, exponential ability to be able to. Because now instead of just like if I, if I wanted to move something heavy, I could do it with a lever and move it, or I could bring you, right? right. And in your simplest form, you just grab the other end and pick it up and carry it, right? But if it's bigger than that, I get more than just your back. I get your brain, right? So now I have a whole other brain and all his life experiences and all his education and all the things. And so now, all of a sudden, man, we can really accomplish some things. And so that's the real value of tribe is you get a bunch of really, and of course you have to be selective with your tribe. That's a different subject, but, but you get really good people who are real valuable add to your tribe. And now when we have a problem, all of them are solving it, right? That's really the value of a tribe. And so that's in my opinion, the best force multiplier, but there are many types of force multipliers, rank status, you know, are societal appointments, if you will. Uh, he's higher in, in the business than I am. That gives him more power. Um, those are all force. And one of the things that I think is really early in people in a young man's life or woman is how do you get what you need done, done, even though you don't have the force. So if you're lower in a position in a business, well, now I have space and I have time and that guy's got force. How do I leverage my space and my time and what little force I have to use that guy's level of force to affect that guy so he makes the change with his level of force? So there's a lot of different ways to use it. Yeah. That's these universal principles that, uh, that we've defined there in PSYOC. Um, And those are just some of them. But once you see them, you so, oh you start to recognize, Oh, that guy's doing this. I guess people become a little more transparent in general. Uh, because once you start seeing people in through principles and, uh, and judging people by what they, what they do as well as what they say, you start to see consistent formulas and consistent universals and, People get a little more transparent. Uh,
0: I, I love how you talk about that because martial arts, violence, things like that were never part of my upbringing or right. my world experience. And so when you had broken down, you had done uh, a demonstration of when somebody tries to attack you and let's just say you have a knife. So if they come at you with like their left arm, you're going to react in a certain way to either cut their arm or cut their exposed part of their body. And then naturally, whatever damage you just did to them, they're going to now react in a different way. And it's almost like a, 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 a pre-scripted dance. Even violence and fighting and chaos still is pre-scripted because there's rules. And I thought that was just, it just blew my mind. Absolutely incredible. And you've broken it down to a science from decades of research working with other people to bring the, like you said bring their experience and just break all of this down and you've literally broken down violence martial arts all of that to a science and and that's what you've been teaching for many years now to a lot of a lot of people who help serve and protect us.
1: Yeah. You know, I think that um, every martial artist is exploring that and they come up on it on their own but in SIAC we had codified it, right. We had defined it. And, um, you know, um, that makes it when you, once you, once you name it and you have a, a study on it, um, you know, where it becomes so obvious that, um, other people who luck out and get, or they work hard and they figure out this piece and that piece, they're still piecing it together, but you can turn it into a system, right. And that's one of the things I like about that particular system. The, um, is the systematic approach of universals because uh, if it only works when we're fighting then it's i mean most of us don't fight every single day so that's that makes it uh, the, your martial arts training a very little value to you but if you can take them the martial arts training you're getting and then it has it's based on these universal principles that make you and you uh, and it has to have a, a form language it has to have a way where you can explain the concept Uh, otherwise it's just an idea and it's rocket science it's a black hole theory right you actually have to have a physical way that people can understand it and then once you can do that then they can transcend that into the rest of their life and now all of a sudden their martial arts training instead of having a little bit of value in there changes their whole life changes who they are changes their identity changes their direction of life um and they can really you know utilize those principles
0: yeah yeah no i agree i agree 100 percent. like just the little bit of training I've had with you, I have been able to apply to a lot of different parts of my life. And it has been nothing short of a miracle. I don't like hearing people say that, but it's (laughs) it's true. Like being exposed to weapons, guns, knives, to violent situations, hand-to-hand combat, getting knocked down, knocking somebody else down. It has not made me a violent person. It has not made me uh, this crazy out of control person, if anything else, when I do get into an emotional situation, or a problem happens because of my business or something like that, I'm able to use those principles, understanding my body better, and I'm able to react in a much, honestly, a much calmer, more level headed way. And it's, it's made all the difference for me in my life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, You know, uh, you you mentioned, you touched briefly that trained military guys, right? So, and I have to be clear because your intro was pretty, pretty grand that uh, I'm not one of those. I'm not one of those guys, right? So, uh, but I have been fortunate enough to train those guys for a number of years, a couple of decades now. Um, And some of them are my closest friends and, you know, I've had a lot of interaction with them um, as, as well as government contracts and different entities. And, um, one of the things that I worked with is working, uh, on a military contract with, uh, what we call low vis operators, meaning that they're, they're not assaulters. They're not in full kit with guns and there's not a ton, ton of them behind me when you go into a room that are there to help you do the job, accomplish the mission. A lot of times low vis operators are walking around the world and they look like everybody else and they're dressed like everybody else and they're doing their job. Right. And, um, but you know, Not not in, you know, uh, in a way that everybody would recognize. So and one of the problems there is that when people get in those kind of high stress situations is that things start to go south. And the answer seems like, well, I need to go big. Right. I need to draw my gun and fight my way out of here and all this stuff. The problem with that is, is that anytime you go big, there are massive second and third order effects to that action. Right. For, for that operator and for everybody attached to him and everybody he's visited and every location he's ever been, right? So um, that can't be the answer to everything. However, it is the answer to some things. So, but if you feel confident that you can handle yourself when it does go bad, you're less likely to go big, right? So if I if if we take the average person, if somebody insults them and shoves them up against the wall, they're embarrassed, by, and they're embarrassed for their family. They feel like they need to do something. They need to stand up for themselves. You just did that in front of my wife or my girlfriend or for my buddies. Right. All that's, you know, all that goes away. Right. When you realize what you're really capable of, you don't get in fist fights in bars. You don't you don't get in arguments on the side of the road over fender benders or people doing things. You know, that's how you get shot. And, unfortunately, we can we can look at a wide variety of martial arts instructors and and people like that around the country who have done those kinds of things and paid the ultimate cost. You know, they they thought they were going to get in a Muay Thai match and challenge this guy, and the guy just shot him dead. You know, world champion kickboxer shot him dead. That guy, I guarantee, you, thought he was going to punch that guy, and that guy's going to punch him back. That guy was like, no, that's not the. I play on this level of violence, right? And that guy played on that level of violence, so. You know, you have to have to have that ability uh, to be able to do that. If you can't do that, you don't have violence uh, in your back pocket, so to speak. Then I can literally just grab you by the throat and slam you up against the wall and take everything you got. And then if I want, I'll take everything you will have ever. Right. Right. And so and so and some punk can do that on the street. Some 16 year old with, with a pistol, some punk with a blade or a baseball bat. Right. Some guy, home invasion guy or. You know, any of those things. And those things, violence is a part of the real world. Right. Most people live in such a bubble that's so insulated that violence rarely occurs. But when it does, they just generally don't have a problem, have an answer for it. Right. So they just become victims. Right. And so um, we say that there is no such thing as uh, victims, only volunteers. So, you volunteer to be a victim by not becoming educated, not gaining skills, not carrying tools that become force multipliers, and not having at least a foundational understanding of and uh, relationship with violence. You don't have to become a master, but you need to understand how it works. And you need to be able to have that communication language if that's the conversation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It all depends on the com- conversation. Like, why do you train? people with this intensity of violence, because they're going up against potential people whose lives revolve around violence. I remember one of the first things that when I had first met you, you showed the group that I was with, you know, the, the knife you, that you carried on you and the gun that you carried on you. And then the second knife you carried on you. And that was how you got ready for work. Yeah. And I, I, it was just so crazy to me. It was so foreign to me. But when you explain like, hey, if I'm going into this kind of situation and this guy is used to packing a gun on himself because he's selling drugs or doing whatever, this is his normal everyday life. And if I'm not trained properly and ready to be at his level, but actually even higher than his level, then I'm going to get taken out. And that's, yeah. that's not fair to you, your wife, your family, your community, you have a responsibility Tuhan. Tuhan cannot let that happen. And one thing that I want to hit on is training, consistent training. One thing that blew me away about you and your students when I'm, when I was out there was the level of training and firearms is a big part of it. And the f- craziest thing is most of the time your guys aren't at a range shooting targets, doing all this like fancy gun slinging work. They're what's called dry firing in their bedroom every morning. Part of their morning rituals is getting up and shooting blanks for 15, 20, 30 minutes, however long. And it's only once a week that they're actually shooting live uh, bullets. And so just seeing that, having you train me, And now me implementing that in my life, I was in 24 hours. This was at the Principled Savage event. And this is what's so powerful about that event and other events that you you host is within 24 hours, I went from being scared, timid around guns. I had a gun in my house for a couple years. I never used it once. I was terrified at the fact or of the thought that someone might come into my house at some point And I'm not going to know how to use this. I'm going to fumble around with it. Who knows? The worst could happen and I could shoot a loved one or get killed myself. And within 24 hours, I'm completely comfortable around a firearm. I'm not crazy with it. I carry it around me and I don't think twice about it. One thing that you had mentioned with the training is that the gun doesn't have a safety. You are the safety. And once I understood that, but I also put the reps in and I still put reps in now because you got to always be working, continually working, 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 getting those reps in. But in such a small amount of time with working like a, with a grandmaster of yourself, like yourself, I was able to get years of experience in a day. It was absolutely phenomenal, completely life-changing. And I, I wouldn't believe if I was listening to my own self right now, saying this if I hadn't gone through it.
1: Yeah, it, it's um, I have to say it's been a, a pleasure, you know, doing the principal savage. I got the idea because when we train with military guys, you know, it's like a martial arts guy. I'll have a martial arts guy for 10, 20 years. Right. That guy will train with me for the rest of his life sometimes. But um, the military guys, you got a very finite window. So I need to do whatever I'm going to do and I need to make them as As sharp and as skilled as I possibly can, this very finite window, and then test that at the end, right? So, like, because they need to see whether it works or not, right? We got to know because they're going to go do things, you know. And uh, so we need, they need to have be confident in it. And so uh, I just took that idea and was like, well, what can we do with somebody else? What can we do with the average guy? And how can we compress that skill set, pressurize that, uh, and then test that at the end where they can see you know, what kind of improvement they are capable of. And it's been a pretty, pretty remarkable experience overall. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it
0: it changed my whole outlook on violence, my whole approach to it. My confidence level shot way up. And now if if the worst happened, I know I'm skilled enough to be able to keep myself under control. We talked about, you know, breathing techniques, right. you know, like you talked about force. Uh, distance, time, all of that. I'm able to think clearly under these high stress, intense situations. Whether the worst happens, and I'm at a shooting in a Walmart, or I'm in a heated negotiation for a business contract or
1: something. That's right. Uh, That's exactly right. That's the whole idea, you know. Um, is it like we talk about? I can't pressurize you in your business, right? Um, maybe someone else has that particular formula, but it's not mine. That's not my wheelhouse. I can't pressurize people in relationships, but I can bring people together and violence is a universal stressor, right? For all humans. Right. And so, and even if you're good at one to be good at all of them is really rare. So we'll find a way to pressurize you. And, uh, and then you get that pressurized, uh, training modifier, which, which makes everybody it's like an inoculation, right? And so we bump your, your normal up to here. And so before, like, this is all you could take. Now you can take, manage this. And the next time you train, we bump it up. And so then you take those same, you're like, well, this is exactly the same as this business meeting. or Because we all have one operating system, right? That That we run our lives with and ourselves with. And so if you can learn that in martial arts, if you can learn to handle the stress of guys smashing you and trying to stab you and try and draw a gun and you're doing it back. Um, and then you're getting success with that. Well, now you have real competence that you believe in yourself, real competence, proven competence, uh, which gives you real confidence that you can go out into the real world. with. That's exactly but right. It, yeah. But it has to be based in something and it has to be real.
0: And you deliver it with violence. And I love <laughs> every minute of it. Man, this has been just an incredible talk, an incredible journey. All right, Tuhan, I know we're getting up against it. And I wish I had another hour that I could talk to you. There's so many different things that, that you could teach me, teach my audience. But I, I, there is one thing I would like to touch on. And that's your lifestyle and life purpose of continually, continually getting better being better, learning, trying things out, failing, retweaking them, trying something else. And the crazy thing is what your blades, this is what I want to get to is you had spent years upon years, not only working with blades, but studying them, having guys work with them in the field. Like you hand make your blades. I was in your workshop. It was, Absolutely incredible! Can you just walk us through a little bit of the educating you had to do for it, and then the actual trial and error part of uh, coming up with the blades that that you now sell?
1: Sure. Well, you know, uh, the Filipino martial arts is blade based, right? Um, sticks are supposed to be swords, and of course, they have small sword training. Um, then I got into PSYOC. and that is primarily that is all blade all the time. So that was a big influence there. And then we, uh, we, we created a research team, went to different museums, uh, studied, um, you know, uh, at the Smithsonian, we've probably been Smithsonian eight times or something like that. Um, Studying these antique blades that have been in this drawer for a hundred years. Nobody's picked it up in a hundred years, except us, you know, and, uh, analyze them and study them and and uh, compare that to the movement method of the martial art. Like how does this weapon move with us? And this, you know, d- does this fit? And then when we put it all together and say, okay, well, what do we need today? Right. What's the, what's the end use for today? So we go, okay, well, the people who are using these tools out in the field um, have very specific missions. And so, each knife has to be designed towards that very specific mission. So, if you have guys who are running full kit, uh, plate carriers, and a lot of things, they can carry a full size knife. And um, this is what they're going to do with it. This is how they're going to carry it. this I got to resheath it. Um, so, we create that blade, uh, a prototype, uh, several prototypes. Those get passed around um, so that everybody can give feedback on that. And all together all 10,000 hands uh in Siak and and the military guys that we work with come up with an end result and so based on all that feedback we have the the design uh, and then that gets uh, made and goes back out into the world so it goes from being just an idea um uh to you know something that people are carrying every single day all over the all over the planet so it's been a fantastic process it's been very exciting for me. I'm still studying I'm reading four different books right now on uh, ancient blades from uh, Indonesia uh, you know I'm still trying to learn every day
0: that's incredible i I love how how you're talking about that like not only is it cool enough that you went to like all these world-renowned museums like the Smithsonian and you get to go in the back room and work with these blades that have never been on display or haven't been on display for decades at these museums and you get to take what everybody throughout the whole uh evolution of man for the last i don't even know how long and see what they've used you would weigh it measure it test it out and then you're taking all that data in and saying okay for the people that i'm working with what attributes handle size handle weight dexterity uh balance there's so many important physics when it comes to just the blade itself what was it used for how was it used was it effective was it not and that you're taking you would think oh yeah a blade is a blade they're just coming out with better materials now you know this this new carbon fiber material makes a better blade but it's not. It's not even so much the material like that's obviously important. You can't have a a terrible material, but like you were doing the research, testing it in the field and then taking all that input. It was just like what you talked about with watching the uh, surveillance videos and working together with your tribe to ultimately make the best, most useful force multiplier you can. So... The good guy can take out the bad guy, come home to their family and, you know, fight another day against the
1: evils of the world. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what I what I believe is that we are, we do have modern materials, but I don't think they're better than what they were using back then. I think it's just easier for me as a maker. OK, right. for. For me as a maker, I don't have to slave away to take seven different types of steel from different regions and and water from three different rivers, you know, and sand from five different beaches and put it all together and, and then spend, you know, uh, uh, weeks hammering it into a better steel, right? I can just buy that steel right now. It's better than, you know, better than I don't have to go through that whole process, right? And back then you had to have this and that, and so this guy's hammering and this guy's doing this. And, you know, they're, they're trying to experiment and the different types of mediums are going to quench the blade in from being super hot to, to cold. Well, now we have everything from a, an electric f- forge. It's, I can preset it with a digital forge. It'll hold it for a preset number of time. And so it's really the process makes it easier for me and the ma- manufacturers and makers. But I don't know that the result we're producing is better. Gotcha. Uh, every time I hold one of them, I, I'm always I'm always thinking some guy literally squatted in a grass hut in the jungles of the Philippines and beat this out on a rock with another rock and made this amazing work of art. Um, I'll never be that good, right? I'll never be as good as that guy right there who was making those swords that those guys were going to carry into the jungle and fight battles with. Right. But, um, But fortunately, I... I am with modern supplies and modern manufacturing. Uh, uh, I I can go in there and make something that is close enough facsimile to to be useful in today's world. Yeah,
0: and i yeah. i have a I have a, uh, a rat blade myself from Headhunters. It's it's a phenomenal knife, and I I well, I don't train with it, but um, I do well, bring it. Fix that. Yeah. yeah well, I, I train <laughs> with my trainer. <laughs> yes.
1: Yes. Train with a trainer. That's absolutely right. That's what it's for.
0: But yeah, it's, it is, they are great knives and um, they can definitely be used a lot more than cutting open your Amazon box. That's for (laughs) sure. So awesome. Well, Tuhan, it has been an absolute honor and a privilege to have you on. I appreciate you. um, Well, first coming on, and then I appreciate you doing two parts to this. There was no way that I was only going to allow you to get away with an hour. <laughs> There's just too much value that you add, too much, uh, um, too many amazing stories. And it's just you live a life that's larger than life. But at the, like you said, I think at the beginning of the first part is that you're just a man who's showing up and, and going to work.
1: That's it. Show up and go to work and listen to the people who came before you and trying to help the people who are coming after you. That's exactly it. That's exactly
0: it. And you can do some amazing things with your life if you just show up and get to work. That's it. Thank you all for listening. Thank you once again, Tuhan, for being on. I will definitely like to have you on again. And for those of you listening, Tuhan will be starting his podcast here in the not too distant future. Do you you have a name for the podcast yet? Principled Savage. Principled, that that is a perfect title. So check out Principled Savage. It should be coming out here soon. He's going to have amazing guests on the show. Uh, You have talked, I'm sure some of the men you have talked about in these episodes are going to be guests and it, I'm going to be listening. It's going to be absolutely amazing. So once again, thank you for coming on for those who are listening. Thank you once again for tuning in. It's an absolute honor and privilege, and I'm completely blessed to be able to talk to you and just get these phenomenal guests on the show and share their stories and their knowledge with you.
1: So, well, thank you very much. Hey. Be dangerous out there, buddy. That's right. Be dangerous.
0: And with that said, peace out.